one more time. Lord, we just um, are so aware that um, we don't have anything to say apart from you. So I just pray that your word, Lord, would uh, flood our souls, that you would give us an understanding that um, so often we don't have, Lord. That the power of the Holy Spirit would just uh, move among us and that the glory of the Lord would just shine. Because, Lord, apart from you, we know that um, we can say nothing and we can do nothing that's profitable. But in you, Lord, Lord, in you, everything is glorious and holy and true. So we pray that you might lead us this morning, Lord, into understanding your word and drawing closer to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. couple of things that um, I really didn't intend to say anything about, but because of the somberness of the moment, I just want to mention that um, at at times like this, sometimes it's, um, or often, it's so easy to get caught up in the horror and difficulty of what's going on that we begin to lose our focus. And we lose our focus on what is. And it's easy to say that, you know, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on the Word of God or your heart, you know. And that's why... We're told to store the Word of God in our heart so that it's there all the time, so that it's not something that we have to spend hours searching for because we just, it's, it's a, it's just been built up in us. And just to give you some examples, um, you know, some of the, the giants in Christian history have gone through periods of terrible doubt in their lives. You take somebody like um, Spurgeon. Spurgeon, it says about John Spurgeon that um, his depression could be so debilitating that he could weep by the hour like a child and not know why he was weeping. And to fight this causeless depression, he said, was like fighting a mist. It was a shapeless, undefinable yet all beclouding hopelessness. It felt at times like prison. Says the iron bolt which so mysteriously fastens the door of hope and holds our spirits in gloomy prisons needs a heavenly hand to push it back. And if you read what C.S. Lewis says after his wife dies, man, you just, it's, he says this, Lewis said that when all is well and life is happy, God seems present and welcoming with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face, 
and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that silence, you may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the window. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in our time of trouble? John Newton in prison cried out in despair that he would never see his child again. And it was a a despair and a doubt that um, lasted for quite some time. John Owen, who was one of the deep thinkers uh, of England during the time, I wrote a book called, and if I live to be 200, I'll get through it one day. But it's it's, uh, entitled, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. And it is, um, the preface by by J.I. Packer is probably 20 pages long. And it is, it is deep. It is really, and this is what John Owen said, if I can find it real quickly. You would think that someone like that would not be in despair at all, but he said, and again, I won't, but he just talks about how he preached for so long, and then he found out that he had no real grasp of what he was preaching. And he just um, was in this despair, this doubt of despair, like Bunyan talks about in Pilgrim's Progress, until he finally the light came out, and it was after reading Psalm, I think, 130, that the light finally broke through. So you see these giants of the faith and the kind of deep despair they can get into. So we need to really understand that and be sympathetic when people are going through something like that. Uh, Because uh, what does the scripture say about take heed lest you fall when you see other people going through something? But anyway, that was something I wasn't intended to say anything about. But what I want to be is in the first chapter of Luke. And um, we're not going to get too far into it because it only has 80 verses. So, and uh, anyway, one writer said that um, if there had been newspapers... In the Roman Empire, 2,000 years ago, some of the headlines might have been King Artaxus nears death, grain ships dock at port, Rome riots in, nine pirate ships sunk by Roman fleet, Athens students clash with police, Olympic wrestler still in coma, angels reported cited in Judea. Again, we're going to be in Luke 1. You know, headlines like this uh, would look a lot like they look today because the New Testament world was a whole lot like ours too because people don't change. There were wars then. There was sickness. There was poverty and there was injustice. There were people who struggled to keep on living 
because living was just a habit when they hung on that they hung on to without any idea that things were going to get any better. The world was populated by people just like us. George Bernard Shaw, George Bernard Shaw, he was an uh, Irish-born English playwright and um, also a critic. Most famous work was uh, Pygmalion, and you'll know it better as My Fair Lady. And he said this, If the other planets are inhabited, they must be using Earth as their insane asylum. <laughs> and we feel like that sometimes, don't we? It feels like there's insanity everywhere we look. And the world of Rome was just like ours, and it was filled with hurting people who needed a living touch and a word of encouragement. God never designed the world to be like it is today. And scripture shows, it says that God shows man the way of peace and the way of true life. But in Isaiah 5, 7, it says that God looked for justice and he saw bloodshed for righteousness and he heard cries of distress. But now God's about to burst onto the scene in the to a world of men. Jesus is about to be born. And after his birth, everything's going to change. There's still going to be wars. There's still going to be injustice. There's still going to be terrorists. But everything has changed nevertheless. And one of the people that God used to proclaim this epic news was the gospel writer Luke. Luke's responsible for over a fourth of the New Testament. When you consider he wrote both Luke and the book of Acts. And that's an amazing fact when you consider that Luke was a Gentile believer. So you've got a Gentile writing over a fourth of the New Testament. If you ever considered that. And scripture tells us he was a physician and his manner of writing is of a very educated man. It's classical in some parts, and then he goes into the vernacular. But um, his vocabulary is so extensive that he uses 266 words in his books that are not found anywhere else in the New Testament. Gives you an idea of his education. And while many of Jesus' followers were called unschooled and uneducated men it didn't apply to Luke much of the material in his gospel it doesn't have any parallel in Matthew, Mark or John there are 15 parables and 7 miracles found only in Luke and nowhere else do you read about the good Samaritan the rich fool the lost coin, the prodigal son, the rich man and Lazarus, and many other things. Over half of the verses in Luke contain the words of Jesus. His gospel was written for the Gentiles. And you see the emphasis is on forgiveness 
an individual response to Jesus the Savior. His concern was not about the return or the future of Israel, but personal salvation. And Luke, more than any other gospel, emphasizes prayer. He talks again and again about Jesus going off by himself and praying. Many scholars consider it probable that Luke knew Mary, the mother of Jesus. And that's why his gospel includes the amazing account of the shepherds visiting the manger, the story of Elizabeth and Zacharias and the birth of John the Baptist, the mention of Simeon and Anna when Jesus was presented in the temple, and the story of Jesus questioning the religious leaders in the temple at age 12. (coughs) Only Luke. Tradition says that Luke was a physician who practiced in Antioch. That was the first Gentile church was established there. And Luke may have been a member when Paul and Barnabas went there as part of an evangelist team. We know that Luke traveled with Paul because you see it in Acts again and again. And as a result, Luke, a Gentile believer again, who travels with Paul, he ends up writing a good portion of the New Testament. And finally, as a way of introduction, Luke shows numerous Samaritans, women, children, Roman officials, and other traditional outsiders in a positive light. There's no criticism of Roman officials. The centurions are good people that help out Israel. You see women talked about, he talks about more women than any other book, by name a lot of them. And again, uh, that's not common in the Gospels because women just were not part of the everyday conversation. And Luke alone is the one that tells about the thief on the cross who repents and is promised a place in paradise with Jesus. It's a little unnerving to me that so many times in reading Scripture we run quickly through passages without considering the question, could I explain what I just read to someone who doesn't understand it? Because we skip over it so quickly that we don't think about it. And more than a few times in reading Scripture, I've had to stop and think and look at some solid commentaries to confirm what I thought I knew or give me an understanding that I didn't have before. All Scripture requires us to do more than just read it and move on. The requirement is to study it, to store it in our hearts, and to believe it and to live it. Scripture, skipping over the parts that are not initially plain to us is not helpful for our growth in the Lord. But if I'm not careful, that's what I do. Look at the first four verses of the first chapter of Luke. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, 
just as they were handed down to us by those from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order. Most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the exact truth about the things you've been taught. So Acts and Luke both are addressed in the first place to Theophilus. He's called most excellent Theophilus, a title that suggests somebody of wealth and position and authority. This type of dedication is common uh, in books intended for a wider audience, so it's not just for Theophilus, but it's sort of an introduction to him that might spread throughout the Gentile world, which is who Paul is writing to. Excuse me, Luke is writing to. Pardon me. Theophilus had already heard about Jesus, and Luke's writing to him to confirm that the gospel was authentic, reliable, and true based on eyewitness accounts to the event. You know, during this time, a lot of people sprang up talking about Jesus, a lot of fables were reported. And this sort of thing. But when you're speaking during a time where there are thousands of eyewitnesses that are still alive, you can't get away with it. Now, 100, 200 years later, it's more difficult. But when eyewitnesses are there, it's a whole different ball game. Luke says he has investigated to ensure the accuracy of the things that you've heard and what he's writing. He acknowledges that many other books, many other things have been written about Jesus, but everything can't be trusted. So Luke is writing an orderly account, a carefully researched account of Jesus' life and message. The phrase from the very first, or from the beginning, can be translated from above indicated the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Luke's writings. Now, the rest of what we'll look at, verses 5 through 25, let me read what Luke has to say. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God, in the appointed order of his division... According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. 
And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. If there's one verse I don't think you have to have in a Bible, it's that. Because every time you see a Bible, fear grips you. Mm -hmm. But the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for sure? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. In these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. This is Herod the Great. But the only great thing about him was his wickedness and ruthlessness. He was tyrannical, vengeful, cruel. This was the Herod that killed all the babies from two years old and under. When the wise men refused to come back to him to let him know where they had found the one that was going to be king of the Jews. So after the wise men left without coming back to him to report their finding, all the children were slaughtered. And a horrible as this was, 
Secular history at the time barely records it. And the reason that barely so they barely record it is because he did so many horrible things that that was relegated to the back pages. It would be like a newspaper where all these horrible headlines are up front, and this is a little footnote on page six, because everything else he did so overshadowed this to most of the people, just to give an idea of, of his wickedness. And in the midst of the darkness, God was getting ready to turn on the light. This ought to be encouraging to us. When things look the most dire, when the darkness seems palatable, God is getting ready to turn on the light. He's preparing the way for the one who is not the light, but one who will still point the way to the light, to the Messiah. So in the bleak darkness of Herod, God is at work in ways that are not immediately apparent, just as he does today. And in those days there was a priest named Zechariah. He's just an ordinary priest, an old priest, and his wife Elizabeth was also a daughter of a priest, and they were childless. Scripture says they were both righteous before God and walking blameless in the commandments of the Lord. This means they served God faithfully. Righteousness does not mean sinlessness in this context and in most contexts in the Bible. It means deferring to one's obligations and his relationship to God. Blameless means accepting God's way and seeking to live by it. The NIV says that he was upright in the sight of God. While the society often thought that childlessness was a sign of um, God's anger or displeasure with you, what it says here, clearly, that was not the case for this couple. Unlike so many people that you saw, what they showed on the outside was what was alive to them on the inside also. Imagine a priest that, you know, is an elevated status and you're childless. The kind of talk that people give God is not, God's favor does not rest on you. You've got no children. Because scripture says, you know, children are a blessing from the Lord. And so God's withheld your bless, a blessing from you. So there's talk. And it stays with them for a long, long time. To be chosen to burn incense was quite an honor. There was only one temple, and the priest served on a rotating basis. The division of Abijah, which Zacharias' division, was eighth out of 24 divisions, and with each division ministering for a week twice a year. The large number of priests at the time, hard to believe, but Josephus says there were probably 20,000 at the time. 
So, with this many, with there only being one temple, that meant that a priest's opportunity for taking part in the ritual, it was very few. You might not have more than one in your whole lifetime, and a lot of them never had the chance to participate in the burning of sense, incense in the temple. So it was a it was a huge blessing. But now that Zacharias is in the temple providing fresh incense on the altar in the holy place before the most holy place, the angel Gabriel appears to him. Imagine the shock and the fear that Zacharias must feel and his confusion at the angel's announcement. Again, this is what the angel says in verses 13 through 17, just so that we have a handle on this. The angel said to him, Be not afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. All right, Zacharias, you don't have any children, you're going to have a child. And not only are you going to have a child, you're going to have the one that's coming in the, in the power and spirit of Elijah. He's going to announce the coming of the Messiah. That's a mouthful. And you're old. Your wife is old. You're past the childbearing ages. That's tough. And this child's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit in your mother's womb. He's going to turn many people to the Lord and make the people ready for the coming of the Lord. And Zacharias says, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. You know, on the surface, we don't have a problem with Zacharias. His doubt was based on an understanding of his, of nature. You don't have children at this age. He and Elizabeth were way too old. But he left God out of the equation. And we sometimes did the same thing. We ask God to give us, to answer our prayers, and we're thinking, well, the way this would normally happen is. But God is the God of unusual. And so when he something happens that's not the way we expect it to. We think God didn't hear and God isn't answering. And sometimes he goes around a circle before he gets back to having our understanding open so that we see what's going on. But again, Zacharias had forgotten that God had intervened many times before in situations like this. Abraham and Sarah with Hannah, the mother of Samuel, 
with um, the parents of Samson. So there, there are many scripture references where women were barren and God supernaturally brought children. But the most important thing that Zechariah didn't pay heed to was that this word that Gabriel spoke was a word from God. So Zacharias is doubting. He's doubting the word of God. And the result is that he's struck dumb and won't speak until his son is born. Can you even imagine what a difficult thing this is? Here's the greatest thing that's ever happened to you probably in your life. You're going to have a son, which is impossible. And he is going to be the one that announces the coming of Messiah. And you can't tell anybody. You can't speak for six months. Excuse me, for nine months. Making you into a bigger miracle, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Keep adding to it. Right in the text here. From the very beginning, there have been a multitude of people outside praying while he's inside with the incense. And they're still outside when he comes out. And they've been waiting patiently for Zacharias to come out because it doesn't take that long. This ritual is not a long thing. And they're going, why, why is he taking so long? And then when he finally comes out, he can't speak. So they're delayed by the puzzle. They're puzzled by the delay. And then they figured that he had seen a vision. He could only make signs. So he can't share with them the fact that he had just seen Gabriel. And the last time Gabriel appeared to anybody was in Scripture was Daniel. So he can't share about the angel, can't share about his son, he can't share about the Messiah. All this sharing's got to wait again until nine months, until his son John is born. In the same chapter, there appears to be a case where Mary doubts a few verses later that we won't get into. And the same angel Gabriel appears to her. And there's no rebuke this time. Why? Sometimes you have to look closely to see the difference that's not obvious the first time you look at it. And we'll look at it later. One thing to remember in relation to Zacharias is that God has been silent for 400 years. Okay? Nobody has heard from God speaking directly prophetically, or any other way that we know of, for 400 years. Chronologically, Luke is shown as the beginning of the New Testament. Zacharias means God remembers. And Elizabeth means his oath. When did God take an oath? Psalms 89, 34 through 37 reads, my covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the oath, the utterance of my lips. Once I have spoken by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants 
shall endure forever. And his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon. And the witness in the sky is faithful. God remembers his oath to David. That one of his descendants would have an eternal reign. God's ready to break through into human history after 400 years of silence. One writer says, You've probably noticed that God often speaks to his people and calls them when they're busy doing their daily tasks. Both Moses and David were caring for sheep, and Gideon was threshing wheat. Peter and his partners were, attend- were mending nets when Jesus called them. It's difficult to steer a car when the engine is not running. When we get busy, God starts to direct us. So six months later, Gabriel is sent by God to make another announcement of an even greater miracle, one that's going to change everything forever. Part two later. We need to look at Scripture closely. I mean, Zechariah is a priest of the division of Abijah. Who? Abijah. Okay, woo. Now I'm excited. You know, now I understand what the fool has that got to do with anything. But if you go back to Second Chronicles, I think it is, it tells you how the priests were divided and how it's so only two weeks out of a year does his division get to go into the incense? And out of that division, there are hundreds of priests. And you can understand why, for some of them, they never had that opportunity. And on the very time, you, you know, it's this thing of, you know, man does this, but God is the one that chooses the lots. You know? So God decides, all right, you're going now because you're going to have a son and after that, the Messiah's coming. Here's the order. God intervenes all the time. We just don't see it. We're not very bright. We don't see very well. Our hearts are callous. Women more than men, but... You know. <laughs> well, Greg, I noticed that the angel had to fly at Zacharias. Didn't have to fly at Elizabeth. <laughs> well, no, it's, you don't understand. The reason he, I understand it's right there in the word. I know, but but the reason that that happened is because even for an angel, it's impossible to quiet a woman. <laughs> Some things even angels can't do. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your word. Lord, it's a it's a It's a joy to us. Help us to love it more. Help us to study it more. Help us to to be able to understand so that we might share with others in an understanding way. And for all of this, Lord, we give you the praise and thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.